Today, in our journey through the life of Jesus, we are looking at what I'd like you to see as the third most important event in all of Scripture. The first most important event in the Bible is Golgotha, it's the cross, which we're going to look at next week. The second most important event is the empty tomb, which we're going to look at the week following. But the third most important event is what transpires in the upper room the night Jesus is arrested. We think of the night divine as Christmas, the angels singing, the joy of Jesus' birth, and that was important, but that pales in comparison. That simply points to this night. This is really the night of nights. If uh, this was a movie, the people doing the movie would be trying very hard to get the pit in our stomach to begin to tighten up. They might emphasize it with some lighting effects and some background music. Okay, the music's a little too much, that's for sure. All the plots move and intertwine and begin to crescendo at this time, this night. All of history has been moving to this. Here are some of the things that take place. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. The Last Supper, which we're going to look at with some detail today. We have the betrayal of Judas, some of the most important and most precious sayings of Jesus. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. That is from the upper room. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That was from the upper room. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me in the upper room. I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. So many precious truths we could spend weeks. It merits a full series just on this teaching element in the upper room. We have the priestly prayer of Christ for himself, for the disciples in the room, and then for you and I as he looks down through the corridor of time. Beyond that, the garden scene, and then, of course, the arrests, the trials, the betrayal and denial of Peter. This is a pretty powerful night. So because we're doing an overview of the life of Christ, how do we take and pull back and look at it and say, what is the most important piece of this to the drama of humanity, the central figure of which is Jesus Christ? I want you to picture this night as the pinnacle toward which all of history has climbed. What we have looked at since we began our study on the Old Testament and began in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God, everything that has transpired in the course of human history has climbed to this moment. And everything that now will happen will be forever dramatically impacted by this moment. And so I want you to picture Jesus now having climbed to this highest moment in human history. And from that peak, he has two perspectives. He's looking back through all of that history, and he's looking forward 
to what is about to happen. And there are two primary things that take place, one representing the tracing of history to this moment, and that's the Passover feast. The next thing that happens is Jesus teaching to his disciples looking forward about the new community. So the two things that we're going to look at, we're going to refer to as the new Passover, what we now refer to as the Lord's table, and then we're going to look at the new people of God, and everything he says on this night is all about shaping that new community. So I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning uh, in the first verse of uh, Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials." And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, 
Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. This is the word of God. It's interesting that Christians adopted very early the cross as their primary symbol. Why is that? When you compare Jesus to the three other great religious leaders, Moses, for instance, died at 120. You got the people of Israel to the promised land. Buddha died, I believe, somewhere around age 80, achieved enlightenment. Muhammad died somewhere around age 60, united Arabia under one rule and one religion. Jesus dies at age 33 in shame and abandoned by virtually everyone who knew him. Why that? John Stott, who is a great Christian thinker and writer, wrote this about the symbol of the cross. A universally accepted Christian emblem would obviously need to speak of Jesus Christ, but there was a wide range of possibilities. Christians might have chosen the crib or or the manger in which the baby Jesus was laid, or the carpenter's bench at which he worked as a young man in Nazareth, dignifying manual labor, or the boat from which he taught the crowds in Galilee, or the apron he wore when washing the apostles' feet which would have spoken of his spirit of humble service. Then there was the stone, which having been rolled from the mouth of Joseph's tomb, would have proclaimed his resurrection. Other possibilities were the throne, symbol of divine sovereignty, which John in his vision of heaven saw that Jesus was sharing. Or the dove, symbol of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven on the day of Pentecost. Any of these seven symbols would have been suitable as a pointer to some aspect of the ministry of the Lord. But instead, the chosen symbol came to be a simple cross. They wished to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus, neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign nor his gift of the Spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. Why? The moment that the world looked at as his moment of greatest failure. Why would they commemorate that? Well, what happens on this night explains it because Jesus actually tells them before the cross happens why it's going to happen. After the events take place, they look back and they remember what Jesus says. They embrace the death of Christ is the central event in their lives. Tens of thousands of people embracing Christ, embracing the cross. Let's look at what Jesus had to say. And the first thing we're talking about is the new Passover. And what that lets us know is that the cross is centered in history. Just to, just to review, in our Old Testament study, we looked at the Passover and the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. The night before Israel was finally freed from Egypt, the uh, angel of death was going to come and judge the firstborn 
of Egypt and of Israel, except that a lamb was to be sacrificed, the blood put on the doorpost of the homes of the Israelites, and that night was instituted a special meal that became known as the Passover, and they were to have this meal every year to commemorate. And so what is happening this night with Jesus and his disciples has been taking place year after year after year for centuries. Typically, the head of the household would stand up and take one of four cups. There was also bread, there were bitter herbs, there were numerous things that helped tell the story of the great deliverance that God had brought for Israel. Today, they pour the fifth glass for the Messiah, hoping and wishing for Elijah to return and bring about the full redemption of Israel. Interesting that that exists today. But what would happen is that the head of the household would take the cup. In fact, when it says Jesus took the cup and he blessed it, for the original listener, that's a very familiar scene. What would have happened in the past as the father takes the cup, the children would ask this question. Maybe you're familiar with it. Why is this night different? than any other night. And then the head of the house might teach from Deuteronomy 26 and say something like, our forefathers were slaves, but God looked upon our suffering. And then when he took the unleavened bread, he might quote from Deuteronomy 16 and say, this is the bread of our affliction, generation upon generation, year after year after year, so that Israel never forgot this primary act of salvation from Egypt and remembered that God heard them in their suffering and delivered them. So it's very familiar in one sense, but yet, and this is how it becomes the new Passover, Jesus stands up, takes the cup and blesses it, and then says words that have never been spoken before, completely foreign to what the disciples had expected. Instead of talking about the past, Jesus talks about the future. This is the bread of my affliction. This is the cup of my blood. You see, centuries ago, they ate a meal that would deliver the nation of Israel from their physical and political enslavement. But tonight, tonight, we eat a meal to deliver the human race from the ultimate slavery to sin and death. All those centuries of celebrating this Passover, so on this night, I could tell you that the cup of blessing was always my blood and the bread of my suffering for you. That is unbelievably powerful. And it's why, by the way, it begins by Jesus saying, notice the language, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Not just Passover, but this Passover. Why? Because this was the final Passover that mattered It had served its purpose by the end of this night. The Greek language there, if you tried to say it literally, would be a bit confusing. Where we say in our translation, I have earnestly desired, what he's really saying, I have desired with desire. It's a Semitic doubling. What we're supposed to understand is that Jesus is going crazy with excitement. Everything he has done has come to this point, and he's saying, I'm so excited to celebrate this Passover with you. Because now the one who it pointed to for all those centuries 
has come and walked for 33 years among men and is about to fulfill the true act of freedom, the exodus from sin and death for the whole human race. And therefore, this night is truly different than any other night. I love that. Saying all this in the midst of the Passover is Jesus saying, my death, the cross, is the climax toward which all of history has been moving. It's not a tragic turn of events. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus. It was always the plan. You see, if you're going to really be transformed by the story of Jesus, you have to embrace that the cross is the central theme of that story. And not because in looking back we see the importance of it, but because God, before he spoke the words, let there be light, put the cross in the timeline of history. That's what this new Passover represents to us and why now we commemorate the Lord's table, which is the fulfillment of the Passover feast, as believers all around the world because we look back at that very night and that same event and know that our history has been forever altered because of it. Not only is the death of Jesus the climax towards which all of history has been moving, it's also the foundation upon which the entire future is built. And we'll see this in the teachings about this new people of God. You see a heavy emphasis of that in the teaching segment of John chapters 13 through 17, his telling of this night. Heavy emphasis on this. But we do see it here as well. And what we see are three primary characteristics of this new community that the cross would create. Let me list them first, then I'll take them one by one. The first thing about this new community is that it will be the ultimate family unit. The second characteristic is that it will be a radically different society. And the third thing is a radically new kind of leadership. The cross was meant to create this new community. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. Let's look at those three characteristics. The first, the ultimate family. Now, typically, the Passover is celebrated by families. And the head of the house, the patriarch, would preside over the ceremony. We miss that 2,000 years later. What Jesus did was revolutionary. Taking these men, some of whom were not much older than a high school student, and asking them to not go celebrate the Passover with their family, which the law and the tradition expected. Imagine explaining that to your family. <laughs> and then Jesus presides as the head of the household. Blood bond in human society is the strongest bond that we have, right? Family bond. But what we learn from what Jesus is saying and doing here is that there is a deeper blood bond. The blood bond of Christ binds us together as brothers and sisters of Jesus himself who serves as the head of the house the firstborn of the Father, presiding as head over this new household of faith. That's why Jesus spoke about his heavenly Father, who we can also now call Father. Isn't it true when you travel, you find people, and you find out at some point in your conversation they belong to Christ, and it's like, boom, your family. Isn't that true? 
Don't you find that? And that's not meant to denigrate human family. It's a a wonderful thing. It's a God-ordained institution. But as powerful a bond as the human family is, it's a mere illustration to the bond we are to have as brothers and sisters in Christ through the blood bond of Jesus. The second thing, as one of the primary characteristics of this new society, is just the radical nature of it. I want to read beginning at verse 24 again with you. At that time, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. That doesn't sound too much like a new society yet, does it? (laughs) Jesus goes on, and he describes the way the current society works. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That's a key word here. The Greco-Roman world was built on what we call a patronage system. You helped people as an investment always with an expectation of payback. That's what Jesus was referring to when he uses the term benefactor. Notice it's a title. It's a capital B. It wasn't that long ago that cultures in Europe were built on that very same system. And I would argue that our culture still predominantly operates on that system. I do this for you. You owe me. That's why position, influence, status, And money matters so much in a secular culture. And everything we do is an investment towards building those equities, serving only in as much as it benefits me. And the disciples thought that the kingdom of God was going to be set up as benefactors. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to owe who? Who's going to serve who? Jesus says, that's not how we're going to work. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table in modern society, in, our, in, in man's society? But I am among you as one who serves. What is he referring to? John describes it with great detail. Here's what Jesus did. It says they were bickering. He gets up, he wraps himself with a servant's cloth, and the one without whom nothing had been created, who existed as one with the Father with full glory, who surrendered that and became obedient to death and was found in appearance as a man, that creator of all, the one in front of whom all of us should be as low to the ground as we could possibly imagine, and then pushing to go deeper, humbling ourselves. That Christ got on his knees before those very disciples who were bickering about being greater than one another, and he washed their feet, and he said to them, don't you see what I've given you? Do you understand it? If I wash your feet, don't you understand? In this new community, the greatest is the least, not the one being served, but the one serving. And I'm with you as one who serves. In this society, power, status, and money no longer control us because the greatest is the servant of all. And that leads us to the new kind of leadership in this new society. The new kind of leadership, and and that's found actually in the account of Peter. We we all know about Peter's grand failure, three times denying him. Jesus said it was going to happen. Peter saying, never, Lord, never, I'll die for you. 
And then when push comes to shove, he does exactly what Jesus said would happen. Okay, so how is that about leadership? Listen to what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Simon says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison and death. Jesus said, no, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will have denied me three times. So Jesus knows what's coming. And so when he says, I'm praying that your faith will not fail, he's just praying that it won't crush him and destroy him. So he says to him, when you turn back from what is going to be devastating to you, when you turn back, lead the disciples. Satan's request to sift Peter like wheat was God's plan to break Peter of his self-will and his self-reliance. In God's new society, true leaders are first and foremost servants. Servant leadership is a Christian concept. Did you know that? He taught it first. But more than that, leaders in God's new society lead out of their brokenness. We lead not because we have deserved it, not because our record's greater than any other's, but because through our brokenness we have been transformed. We've been crucified to self. We've experienced grace. We've gained wisdom. God forms us through brokenness. We are strong in our weaknesses. The world doesn't see that, but that's the society that changes the world. That's the society that Christ saw that night through these men. And he would, in just a few short weeks, commission to go and bring that very society to the ends of the world, which is still our mission today. Three other little snapshots help bring this moment to light. And the first is that there is no mention of the actual main course for every Passover. None of the gospel writers, and no one looking back, talks about the presence of a lamb on the table. Isn't that interesting? Now, it may have been there. may have not been there. But the point is, as Tim Keller says, the lamb on the table was irrelevant because the real lamb was seated at the table. Christ is not just seen in the cup of blessing and in the unleavened bread. He has always been, as John called him at the beginning of his ministry, the true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's why there's no mention of a lamb at the table, which is usually the main event, because the real sacrifice was about to take place of the real lamb. The second little snapshot is uh, that idea of the fifth cup. Today, as I mentioned, in those who practice the Passover, there's a fifth cup, the waiting for the Messiah, the, the, the coming of the prophet again, who would do what, as modern Jews see, in their own pursuit of righteousness, they cannot do for themselves. Even though they have a righteousness ethic based on doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God, still today very works-oriented in terms of achieving righteousness. They recognize that the ultimate redemption, the ultimate righteousness, needs to be accomplished by the one whom God promised. (laughs) But here's the point. Jesus already drank that cup 
Just a few hours from this moment, Jesus will kneel on his own in the Garden of Gethsemane and cry out to his Father, Father, if there is any way that you can remove the drinking of this cup from me, please do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see the beautiful progression there? The cup of wrath that the Son would drink when he hung on the cross, taking our punishment for our sin on the cross. Then the final snapshot is uh, Peter in the conversation. <laughs> Poor Peter. <laughs> Thank God for Peter. We learned so much through him. John records that when Jesus is cleaning their feet, he comes around to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. He still had this pecking order idea of greatness. Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And this is what Jesus says to him. It's up on the screen. Let's say it together. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, now listen to this. It's beautiful. In that case, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and wash my head. We know that there's deeper meaning to that than just the lesson on servanthood. In the same way he said to Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you can have no part with me. He says to us, your path to relationship with me is to let me wash you, to wash your sin clean, because I'm going to drink that cup. And you're going to have the opportunity to be cleansed and changed forever. And just in the same way Jesus says that to us, our response to him needs to be the same. Well, in that case, Father, cleanse all of me. Not just my feet, not just my hands, not just my head. Clean my heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. That invitation is still ours today. That was the night of nights. Amen. Yeah, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious night. Having taken this long journey through Scripture to this moment, what a blessing it is to see it in that context and to recognize that the cross was always there. Not only in the Passover, but in the ram and the thicket, in the temple sacrifices, pointing the way to the true Lamb of God who would drink that final cup for us so that we could live in newness of life so that we could have our exodus from the, from the enslavement to sin and death. And Father, we say to you, wash all of us clean by the blood of Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.